Margin Call is the podcast that gives you behind-the-scenes access to the ups and downs of working in the Forex CFD industry. We interview the people that keep the show on the road, giving you insight into what makes the industry tick. The series is guest-hosted by myself, Jordan Michaelides, and produced by the team at Neural Media. To learn more, visit gomarkets.com slash podcast. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S dot com slash podcast. Or take a look at the Go Market suite of products at gomarkets.com. Go Markets is a derivatives broker and Jordan Michaelides is the managing director of Neural Media. All opinions expressed by Jordan and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Go Markets, an AFSL license holder. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial decisions nor as an indication of future performance. Clients of Go Markets may hold positions in the derivatives mentioned. A financial services guide and product disclosure statement for our products are available at gomarkets.com. In this episode, we spoke with Louise Bedford. Louise is an author, trading mentor, co-founder of The Trading Game, and founder of Talking Trading. With a penchant for psychology and mindset, Louise is one of the longest standing mentors in the trading business, weathering all the fads that have passed throughout this industry. This episode covers a lot, including what Talking Trading and The Trading Game is, deprogramming yourself and imposter syndrome, dealing with people's presumptions, how she began teaching, and positive mindset for dealing with negativity. If you like the episode, leave a rating on your podcast app or share with your friends, take a screenshot, post on your Instagram story and tag at GoMarkets. Show notes and all previous guests can be found at GoMarkets.com slash podcast. With that being said, Let's get into the episode with Louise Bedford. All right. How are we? We got started. Yes, we're on. (laughs) Louise, uh, something I like to ask all of our guests as we get into the thick of questions. I'm curious, what's sort of the earliest memory of your childhood? Mm, That's an interesting one. I have got three older sisters and I remember taking this china dog from my sister. I was going to put it on a high shelf and my sentence that I gave to her, so I don't know how old I was, was do by self. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) I'm going to do it, cow, not you. (laughs) That's my dog. I'm putting it on the shelf. It's just quite characteristic actually as I've become an adult. Okay. Do you do you have quite a good relationship with uh, with your older sisters? Two out of the three, I do. Yes. Okay. It's siblings is it's always fun, isn't it? Oh, it is. That's right. They're our first testing ground, aren't they? You know, you've got to kind of try the things that are going to work for you for later on on them. Yeah. What did you think you were going to be when you were a kid? Like jobs, careers that you thought you were going to pursue, I guess. I have always loved money. There's no doubt. So, whatever I got into, I wanted it to be well paid. I grew up in a fairly poor household. It was one of those situations where mum had to work out, is she going to buy herself a coat or her daughter's warm clothes for winter? And mum was the one who missed out. So, I didn't want to recreate that, Jordan. I wanted to have money so that I could have choices and whatever I was going to end up doing, I wanted to be able to churn a buck. 
So mm. it's funny how those early processes somehow set you up for what you end up doing. Yeah, and I mean, you've studied psychology, right? So you would know this sort of stuff. There's certain deep things that are instilled in us at a very early age, whether it's by nature or or nurture as well. And I can I got a sense that through all the guests that I've interviewed, there's there's always something like that early on in life that mm. just makes them intrigued by financial markets, um, whether it's playing chess with their dad as a kid for years that made them like the game element of financial markets or, it's, or if it's something like they just wanted to not have a certain lifestyle. It's all, There's always something. Yeah, and it comes down to your money scripts because it's the things that you heard at the top of the stairs. It's not just the things that you experience directly and that gets into your psyche. So, there's two ways you can go. You can either be repelled by what you had as a child or you can move towards what you had as a child. And whatever Mm. you do, as long as you make it conscious, if it's a conscious decision, you're on the right track. I think the difficulties lie when people accept their early programming, they do don't question it and they act as if they're a child when they're an adult. So they just take that on board and they never focus on what they actually do want for themselves. Yeah. And it becomes a part of their narrative, their story. This is who I am. Oh, I'm not good at money. I'm not good at training. Yeah. I'm not good at, you know. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's intriguing how you, it's quite easy to deprogram that and change that. All you have to do, like you said, is uh, is use the old pain and pleasure principle. It's mm. incredibly incredibly valuable. Thing is, though, I think people drift back into that from time to time when they're under pressure because that's when your true character comes out. So that if you're making losses on the market, that's when the imposter syndrome can come out and say, well, I always knew you were a fraud. I knew you couldn't <laughs> do this. You know, yeah. there's, there's all of these little voices that we have to deal with as traders and even institutional traders. I bet you if you ask Chris Gore about this too, he would even have it as the CEO because he's got that corporate view. You know, you've got the institutional people like Tom Williams who he'd be going, hang on, this is a hell of a lot of money that I'm dealing with here. I've got a lot of zeros on the end of this trade that's bigger than I would personally be able to cope with from my own personal equity. So now how does that make me feel? So depending Mm. on the level that you get to depends on when the voices sort of pop up. When you're out of that comfort zone, I think those voices become particularly loud. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned imposter syndrome. I think we all get it from time to time as well, but it's one of those never-ending principles that just reappears its head over the years. Yeah. Um, So, I don't know if your listeners know about the imposter syndrome, but it's a fascinating area. I'm actually friends with the lady who coined the term, Pauline Rose Clance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, She's fantastic. So, she and her partner, um, they came up with the topic of imposter syndrome and it is literally that self-limiting belief that we don't think we're good enough when we get to a certain level of success. And I think it's so common for traders to feel that way. I know with the traders that I mentor and that I counsel, most of them have got at some point, they've had some level of self-sabotage. And that self-sabotage when they've been on a win, maybe 
maybe they've made a cluster of wins, that's when they start making losses and bigger and bigger losses. Like for me, I know I had a series of amazing option trades in BHP all in the one share and it was boom, 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 profit, 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 nine in a row that were just screamingly good trades and then for the next 13 trades, I lost I lost money. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's uh, a way of keeping us down and we think that we're being kept down to size because of that voice. It's actually that self-limiting belief. Unless we combat that, unless we move beyond that, we'll never achieve that which we really, really want in our heart. Mm. I feel like the most crucial principle of what you guys do with the mentor program and the training that you've done over the last 20 years is the idea of the plan. And yes. I know you like you learned this the hard way, right? Like you, you lost I think like this is like everyone. You you lose money in the first I don't it depends how long you're trading for, but for me I lost my money on oil futures. That was what <laughs> that was what really taught me to then go and read and, and learn and, and the biggest thing I learned from that it was about risk management, which it sounds like the plan that you talk about is basically that, right? Yeah, it's so important. So just to to take the listeners back in case they don't know about my background, now I'm a best-selling author and now I've been running the mentor program with my business partner, Chris Tate from Trading Game for the last 20 years. But, you know, when I started, I wasn't anywhere near. I had no idea that that is what would lie in my future. You know, you Mm. don't know five years down the track what you're going to be doing. You have no idea. And when we try and put that future self into our head and get guided by that future self, that's usually the most pure way because we're pulling ourselves into the future with that vision that we want for our future and for our family. So when I started trading, it was 1990, I started trading. I did have a trade beforehand, actually. When I was a teenager, my sister's ex-boyfriend said, this one's a sure thing. I made $5,000 when I was 15. (laughs) Whoa, are you serious? (laughs) I was so excited. So between that and also my dad had a huge gold trade. It was 1984. 1985, we built the new house. 1986, we bought the new boat and the two new cars, all from the basis of that trade. So that turned my head. And when I was down and out, when I'd lost all of my money in Pyramid Building Society, when I'd had a personal business that had gone to the wall because of mismanagement, my mismanagement and my business partner at that stage, that's when I went, heck, I've got to trade again because that's the thing that brought in money. That's the thing that changed my life around as a teenager. That's the thing that really changed my family's future around as well. And that's when I started to go into the market. And sure, it took me three years to break even and I didn't know what I was doing just because dad knew how to do it didn't mean his daughter did and it was one of those situations where I bashed my head against the brick wall so many times until finally I decided to get serious and work out how would a business person approach this Mm -hmm. yeah and and when you were discovering this process uh it's 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 easy now to look back in hindsight but what was sort of the key domino principles that 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 you learned over that time that really, you know, are the foundation of what you teach today? Mm, Yeah. Look, I think there are some concepts that hold true regardless of when we're trading, whether we're trading tulips or in the Poseidon, you know, whatever it is (laughs) across time, it's entry, exit and position sizing. 
So let's go through those three because they hold true. So how are you entering? What are you doing to get into a trade? Is it duplicatable? Is it something that if you wrote it down and you gave it to another trader, that they would be able to absolutely tick every box and get the same result? So that's entry. Exit, which is how to get out. So these days, you know, we've got automatic stops and they have been an absolute godsend. Fantastic, because now we can work a full day and we don't have to worry what's happening in the markets. Fantastic to have the auto stop. But still, anything to do with stops, oh my gosh, people argue against it. They move their stop down when they should only be moving it up for a long trade. They say, oh, well, this one, this one will come good. It's just they haven't discovered oil yet. It's just they haven't discovered that gem yet. That's going to be tucked under the bed. I'll just keep that one as a long-term investment. So, stops are very, very key. And the final principle is position sizing. So, position sizing is how much money to place into a trade. And that is absolutely key. I know a lot of people start with equal positions. So, they go, okay, I'm going to put $3,000 on this and $3,000 on that. But really, there are more sophisticated ways to handle it. There are ways to be able to match the risk of that particular trade itself and to be able to buy the commensurate right amount of shares in that position to be able to match that risk. And it's it's all those types of principles, they don't change. What fouls it up is people, Jordan. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and their imposter syndrome. <laughs> yeah, their imposter syndrome and they're striving for ego dominance and, you know, that scarcity as well, that feeling that you're never going to be able to do this because there's just not enough money for you. Everybody else is more clever than you are. They know more than you do. They have access to information that you don't. Every trader worth their salt has had some thought like that and then it ends up with a big fat pout and either they go on to conquer it or they quit. That's why so many people quit. The market is this massive mirror. You look at yourself reflected in (laughs) your profit and loss just as if it was a mirror and some people don't like that. They can't handle that. They'd prefer to push the market away and preserve the way they think about themselves. And never think about it again. Never, ever, ever. And say to people at dinner parties from then on, I tried that once. I can't believe you're still thinking about trading. You know, it's quite like gambling, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) That is true. That's a very, very true point. I've never, I've, I've found a way, I've been trying to find a way to articulate that for years. Like, why is it that when I lost all that money instead, I went back and tried to improve myself? And then why do so many people, when I have this conversation, they're like, oh, it's a waste of time. Yeah, they're speaking from their pain. There's some hurt there. There's some ego defensiveness there. I actually, um, my sister has, one of the ones that I really get along well with, um, she's (laughs) just started going out with a new man. And there was a Mother's Day sort of lunch thing where some of my nieces and nephews were there. Some of my nieces and nephews have done my mentor program. So they have grown up with me talking about trading and they have risk management in their lives so that they fully understand risk, which is a beautiful thing to watch. I love that in the next generation. (laughs) Anyway, the new boyfriend sitting around the the dinner table and he didn't know quite where everything was at. You know, he had no idea about 
my background. And he said, so what is it that you spend your time doing? I don't know. Did he expect me to say that I'm a housewife? I think he may have. I said, oh, I'm a share trader because I didn't keep my guard up. Because he's supposed to be, you know, in the family home. And he goes, oh, my God, share trading, that's ridiculous. That'll never work. It's just gambling. And for and this, is the, fir- this yeah. is the first time he's met you. Charming. So, for wow. once, I shut my mouth because, oh, my gosh, I could feel myself change colour like some sort of cuttlefish, like, oh, you know, let's hold it all in. <laughs> he's supposed to be, you know, a new member of the family. Let's be nice. And I didn't have to defend myself. My nieces and nephews jumped on him. And they said, what are you talking about? You don't know what this is about and how dare you? (laughs) So now I've got my own little attack relatives to help me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they'd love to hear that. But that's good. It's a good thing though when um, family events are always good for this sort of stuff, aren't they? Yeah, they bring out the worst in people too, don't they? Yeah. Mm. It's, It's funny. Like you must have, I wonder if there's an entire unit in your training program in the six months around how to combat family. We do talk about that, but we also talk about spouses and friends because sometimes, especially when a dream is first birthed, it is the most fragile. So you'll tell people, hey, I want to write a book and they'll go, oh, it's too hard. It costs too much money. Books aren't useful anymore because there are no bookshops. They'll come up with every reason. But that little dream that you've got, it can actually break when it's brand new. So you've got to be careful who you speak to. You have to be careful who you talk to when that dream is first birthed. It can actually be swept out from under you. That's where support comes into it as well. You know, to find people who are your posse, your your people, they're the ones who are not like the civilians out there that have no idea what traders do. They can go along with their little mediocre lives. Just let them. We're not going to criticize them, but they love to try and rip the rug out from under us. So you have mm. to be extremely careful, especially when you're starting, that you surround yourself with positive people. And if you're talking to your spouse and they're not on the same mind script level as you, you do have to be careful because some of their concern will be born through fear. They'll be worried, especially when I see, like I, I'm, I'll generalize here, it doesn't always go this way, but with the guys, if they're the ones who are the traders and the women are the ones who are looking on. Sometimes the men can inadvertently threaten the woman's first role, number one, second, Mm. their security. Now, if you threaten a woman's security, you are going to incur her wrath. There is no (laughs) doubt. So be very, very careful how you phrase things. Even with my husband, I'm the breadwinner. He's fantastic with his support duties because he knows when I need support and he knows when to back off. You know, sometimes you need your spouse to say, you can do it, go on. You know, yeah. you don't always want them to say, it's okay, it's all right if it doesn't work. So my husband's got just the right blend. But even with that, I still make sure I don't threaten his security. So my rule, and this is an absolute rule, is if I lose 25% of our equity, then I will stop entering new positions and I will consult a higher authority. So that mm. is... As we know, if you lose 25%, you have to make 33.3% back up to be able to get to break even. So Mm. that is doable. You can do that. So it's not going to, you know, totally bust you. Whereas if you lose 50%, you have to make 100%. 
That's a good point. It's so cruel, the maths of this. It's not not fair at all, is it? But we have to remember that when we're dealing with our spouses. So I do think to have something like that written into your own trading plan is essential. Yeah. And it's just general self-awareness as well as being – aware of your situation, the people around you, how that may, how your mentality may be affected Mm. by them. I Mm. can see where your background in psychology would really, really help with this. There was something you mentioned before about, um, you know, that the trade of your father's, your own trading at an early age. I, I was just curious when you were growing up, is there sort of a principle or lesson that you hold with you today from either of your parents at all? It's work really hard and don't expect a reward. You know, dad had his own business. It really didn't do too well. (laughs) It's just one of those situations. (laughs) Not everybody can, you know, straight out of the blocks. But he sold it and then Officeworks came in and then took over the entire stationery business. So he sold brilliantly and that was was fantastic. If he had have hung on for much longer, uh uh-oh, you know, wouldn't have been a happy story. So really working hard at the right vehicle, and enjoying that process. You know, so many people think that they have to be passionate about what they do. In fact, we hear it in social media a lot, don't we? You know, find your passion and you'll be successful. What about turning your passion on to what you're actually doing? Mm. You know, that is a real key, I feel. There's actually a, a lot to be said for bringing that energy and not expecting somebody to create that energy for you. Why don't you be the energy powerhouse? Why don't you bring the passion? And then, hey, you'll just discover your person, your, your purpose as you go along. I don't think mm. there's anything wrong with that. Speaking of passion, you're obviously quite a passionate person. I mean, you can just hear it in, in your voice. I, I was curious as to, you know, why, you know, you spend those early years trading, you, you built up this idea of the plan when did you think I want to show other people this? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's an interesting little transition. I never was going to, Jordan. How it worked is I had such a beautiful career. It was fantastic. I was happy climbing the corporate ladder. I was trading alongside and I had a sales rep who works for me. And if he's out there, if Glenn Poswell is listening to this, please get in touch, right? (laughs) Glenn Poswell, he was making more money out of trading than he was that I was paying him. So I was like, what the heck? Why doesn't he ever want to go for the bonuses? And why doesn't he understand the carrot that I'm dangling in front of him? Because he didn't have <laughs> he didn't have the urge, he didn't have the hunger because he was yeah. making money out of the markets. Now I was not making money out of the markets. I saw that and I got annoyed and I thought, no, I really do want to make money now. So he didn't help me, but he acted as my impetus, as my stimulus to be able to say, go get him. You know, that's a winner. Sometimes some someone getting under your skin can be just as good as a positive influence, yeah. I think. So I wouldn't have ever left my job. I loved my job. It was fantastic. And you know that something's going to happen now, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> so in 1995... I'd been working for six years. I was a national manager and it was a wonderful role. And I woke up and I had one little niggle in my finger on my right hand, on my ring finger, and it hurt and I ignored it. And throughout the next two weeks, it spread all up and down both arms. 
So it was the most painful thing I have ever experienced. I've given birth twice without drugs. I would easily give birth again like that. But I never, ever, ever want to go through what I went through for three years with my arms. It was Did you say say it was RSI or carpal tunnel? It's actually a neural condition called focal dystonia. Oh, I know focal dystonia. Ah. So it's it's a nerve-related situation and with uh nerve pain, there isn't really anything that they can do. There's no uh, like opiate that they can give you that will fix it. So it was related to an inflammation and dystonia, as some of your listeners may know, dystonia can affect any area of the body. With the type that I had, it affected my arms other people that have this type of dystonia, it also affects their voice boxes. I was luckily, luckily I didn't lose my voice yeah. with that. It would have been hideous. But uh, it's also hereditary now I've found out. So I do have two cousins who have also got that situation. One who's got a completely atrophied arm and hand, he can't move it at all. So I'm very glad that I was able to overcome it. So wow. I... Had to leave my job. There's no way they want you. If you've got a disability, it is like everybody turns their back. And no matter what sort of environment you had before, they were all on my side before, but then they turned their back on me. And I don't, I can kind of see why. You know, all of a sudden, you've gone from being an asset to a liability. Mm. So that, that's, there's your problem. So I left that job and I thought, heck, the only thing I can do literally the only thing I can do is trade because I can trade with a pen in my mouth. I can speed dial to my broker because they're human brokers and you can speed dial them. I can yell out numbers so he can tap the calculator so I can work out how many to buy. And he did because I worked out you can't actually tap a calculator and say the order with the pen in your mouth. It doesn't work. So <laughs> I had to give him the numbers. He would work out how many shares. I'd repeat the order back to him. He'd put the order on and bang, I'm in business. So thank goodness for trading. When my back was to the wall, there was no other occupation I could possibly have. Trading was a thing that saved my life. Mm. I traded with an aggression that I didn't know was even possible. I had no idea that that was what was in me. I'd already become like that kind of break even, make a little bit of money type of trader by the time I left my job. But when I was full-time, it was like Law. This is it, baby, because there's nothing else available. So I traded mainly options um, for two and a half years, three years while I was recovering to replace my income. And I wish I had have also kept some wealth creation type of longer term positions. If I had have had my time over again, I would mm. have, but I just short term traded during that time and I got really bored. So I taught some other people who had various disabilities that I met down at the swimming pool for rehab. I taught them how to trade so they could get off wealth work there and we could encourage each other. And that's how it all began with me teaching people how to trade. Mm. And it seems like there's a few things there like the necessity was an absolutely crucial part. Like when you're forced that you just Mm -hmm. have to do something and there's no going back, you will do, you know, like Navy SEALs and Marines and the the SAS in Australia, they always talk about how mentally you think you can't do, do something like a marathon, but when you're in the moment and you convince your brain that you can, you can do way more than is than mm. is actually possible. But it's it's interesting you mentioned about that focal dystonia because I just read 
uh, a book by Scott, uh, what's his name? The guy who uh, created Dilbert. Oh, uh, Scott Adams. He, Scott he's Adam. got it in his voice box. And so yeah. they Botoxed him into his voice box yeah. and he was able to speak again. So he was able to sing or say a poem, but he couldn't actually get his voice to just speak normally which is terrible because he was a presenter and it really impacted his life. So, I mean, it impacted my life in a different way. But for him, that was just an awful time. And I really related with what what he was going through for sure. He also got it in his his hand and he was a cartoonist then. Yeah. That was was when his career was first kicking off. He actually said that he believes it's uh, psychological. Like he he said Mm. he, he actually believes that he overcame it through like exposure therapy. Like he would try and, you know, with his hand, he would try and write, uh, you know, literally just a mark on a page or just he would just try and hold the pen and then he would move to the next step and so on and so forth. But I don't know because I, I looked into into dystonia and it doesn't sound like it's it's mainly psychological. It sounds like no. it's actually I would love to MRI him. So the way that it went for me and certainly I know – I'm sure there are people listening to this that will have their own health journey. So I'm not saying that mine is any worse than the things that people put up with in their day-to-day life either. But with an MRI, you can actually see in the brain where the movement is tracking to. So the movement for my hands in the brain actually wasn't even functioning and it tracked sideways into my vocal area, the broker's area in my brain. And the guy that helped me with it, he was a neuroscientist and so he helped me remap. And I would love actually, and I have written to Scott Adams, to say that there are some things that they can do. So a lot of the things that I had to do was to be very conscious of what I was touching and say the word and touch it, like velvet and say velvet and touch velvet it to try and reinforce the connections and I used that a lot with my trading as well to take that time to really focus and be conscious of what I was doing so that it wasn't just you know let's just do it and get it out of the way so I can go for a cuppa you know the thing that I really liked when you interviewed Chris Gore on I think it was episode 10 last season Mm. where he was saying sleep on it You know, you build in a pause to your system and that's an old yoga technique where you take the stimulus, you don't respond immediately, you take a little bit of time to dwell on it and to think about it and to concentrate on it and then you give your answer. Yeah, I think that concept is one of the things I really took out of that interview because that's really what I had to do with my hands. I had to allow them to recover in their own time, to be grateful for the movement that I did have and to be grateful for the fact that there there was an opportunity for me to get better, you Mm. know, because if this had have happened 100 years ago, there's no way in hell. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, really, what would they have done? Sent me to a nunnery. I don't know. What did they do for people who were useless back then? (laughs) Whereas you're useless now and you can trade still. You beauty. (laughs) (laughs) Do do you think that was what inspired your interest in psychology? Was this, you know, this health event? I was I, I already had my psychology degree. It gave me a vehicle. Uh, you know, I think this getting ready for something before it happens is brilliant. 
I really think that's part of the key to being a successful adult. Sometimes the things that you like to do, you just do. You don't know whether there's going to be a personal benefit. And then years later, it all comes together and you go, wow, I'm really using that skill. I had no idea that I would need it. So I'm definite that having that roadmap having my business degree and the psychology degree that I have, where I'd already worked towards something of substantial value. I'd already become a national manager. I knew it was possible to climb, you know, to get that under my belt. I, I kind of hoped, I mean, you don't know, but you kind of hope when you're in that situation, your back's to the wall. You don't know where the next dollar's coming from. You don't know that you can trust your body. I always thought, heck, there's got to be something better. There really just has to be something better. There's got to be a brighter day ahead of me. And I do think some people, when they're in that situation, the trouble with suicide, I'm going there actually, Jordan, because mm. it's, it's in my mind, I'm going there. The trouble with suicide is it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Yeah. If you can possibly envisage the day that you might have a brighter day, then you cannot do what you're thinking of doing. And I did get to that point. My back really was to the wall. But then I thought, there's probably going to be one day that's better at some stage. Yeah, I think I think it's a crucial point because I've um, in the last six months I dealt with some pretty bad anxiety that was it was debilitating. But um, you've got to have like I underestimate the value of a positive mindset. Like I remember for years I used to say, "Oh, you'd meet people and they're just super super positive." And sometimes I reckon a lot of us think, "Oh, that person's just a bit simple." If you know what mm, I mean? But I the happy see, idiot. You yeah, know, you put idiot, those yeah. two together, you don't usually have the intelligent idiot, you have the happy idiot. Yeah, but I, I actually just think it's easier to be negative but more beneficial to be positive and it's harder work. But in the long run, it, you just, you're better off. You, uh, when, you, when you think about thoughts, positive thoughts, they dissipate a lot quicker than negative thoughts do. If you're thinking in, an, in a negative framework all the time, then those thoughts just sit in your mind and bounce around continuously. Mm. Mm. Um, so I've learned the value of that, I think, in the last six months. I think That's people- great. And are you hanging out with people who support you and who encourage you, Jordan? Yeah. And I think I, I always have in a way, but what I've done, what I've learned in particular is, uh, you know, a good example would be social media. I notice now more and more when I see certain types of comments, whether it's on YouTube or Instagram or whatever, I actually just look at the comments and I think, wow, that's sort of really sad. Like I feel sorry for the person that they think in that way because my mm. mind has been permanently Altered. flipped. Mm. Yeah, it's it's like it's like there's no going back. And I think, um, yeah, that that's been incredibly valuable. And I think you notice the type of people that are like that in your life, and you sort of you pull them closer to you, don't you? Definitely, because there is that concept of emotional contagion, where if you walk into a room, you know who is negative. You can feel it. We sense it. it. You can. You can. And as humans, we're very adept to locating threat because in our ancestors' time, if we ignored a threat, that threat could be the tiger jumping out to kill you. So we are attuned to see that negativity. We're attuned to spot it in others and to see whether it appeals and applies to us because that's what kept us alive. So we are pre-programmed to have a negativity bias And we do pick up on that from the people around us. Now, that can be a real catch, especially with social media. And in fact, they show that the higher 
the number of hours that you spend on social media, the higher your chance of having anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, so I totally, that is I totally thing. agree with yeah. that. I mean, yeah. for me, for me, it was the connection to uh, food intolerances, but I think food intolerances just spurred that that negative mindset on. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and I think traders have to be careful with that too. Yeah, you know, we get around the people who are going, "Oh, I just made this loss. Oh, I can't believe it. Cryptos are so bad. Oh, well, you know, and that- going to crash or what? <laughs> it, the, the doom and gloom oh media. Gosh. Exactly, and you have to do something to separate yourself from that. One of the techniques that I use, and I do use this socially as well. This is a winner of a technique, is that you do want to work out. Do you have to be with this person? If you are related to them or if you're working with that person, you probably do have to spend some time with them. But maybe you want to firstly limit the time, okay? Now, you might have a minute a day as being your total maximum that you can handle with that person. If so, work to a clock in your head. A minute for you, that is all you get, Mr. Negativity. So that's number one. Firstly, limit the time with that negative person. And the second thing is if you cannot limit the time, sometimes you have to be near them. Imagine that you're in a bubble. So all of your good, healthy, positive, kind thoughts, your love, your care, your concern, your self-care is all enclosed in that bubble. And then their words touch the bubble and bounce off straight back to them. You're limiting your exposure through a visualization. And I do that if traders, because I'm counseling a lot of traders, you know, I've been in a position now for so many years where people turn to me in their elation and in their pain. And I love it. I do love it. But I have to come up with techniques to protect myself as well. That bubble Mm. technique is an absolute winner. And I can tell you, it's something you can implement in the next five minutes of finishing this podcast. As soon as Mr. Negativity comes up to you, picture yourself in that bubble. It's amazing how much it gives you pleasure to know that you're surrounded by your own self-care and their words are bouncing back to them. I would think like I was just thinking then being a coach must be almost like being a psychologist in a way, but specific. It is. I love that. I get that. <laughs> I get that whole um, input into people's lives, and that is my drug. You know, I love yeah. seeing the light turn on for my traders, and I do it each week as well in my own podcast, Talking Trading. So I run talkingtrading.com.au, and certainly I know if you guys love Jordan's podcast, you are going to adore <laughs> Talking Trading. We're going to have you on, Jordan. I'm sure you're going to be an amazing. <laughs> guest. Each week, I do a mind power segment where I think of something quite topical in my traders' lives and I talk about techniques just like that bubble technique so that you can make sure that you are living your best self, being authentic to yourself and striving. Now, I think that's it too. We, we accept our own excuses. We say, oh, well, there's nobody else who's doing better than that, so I can't do better than that. You know, we believe our own bad press. So to kick that, it takes continual input. That's why I'm such a fan of podcasts as well. I think you're doing a great job with what you're doing here, Jordan. Thank you. I, I, the mind power thing is super fascinating. I, when I saw that, that was one of the key questions I wanted to ask you. I'm also am realizing that we're getting near to time. But before we get to the rapid fire questions, what, why create the mind power element to that podcast? If it's not entry, exit, position sizing, that's your problem. As a trader, it's your mindset. Mm. 
That is absolutely the core of everybody's trading problem that I have ever seen. You can teach somebody to use a system probably in about 10 minutes flat. But the mind, oh my goodness, even my beautiful, my most mature mentoree who was 98, I was with him just the day before he died, beautiful man. He was a full-time trader for the past 12 years of his life, the remaining sort of time that he saw on the planet, oh my gosh, to be a full-time trader. He just walked with such a saunter because of that. I loved it. And my beautiful Ted, he said that the markets are the thing where he's learned the most about himself. And at 98, heck, we've all got a long way to go. Wow. That's interesting. I love that. It's yeah. it's like one of those things where they 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 interview uh, the elderly on, on their, their last few years or maybe it's their last moments and what is the thing that they learnt the most or regret the most? And to hear that yeah. is super interesting. And it gives you companionship too. You know, like so many things age out of our lives. You know, I know that there's a lady who's 85 and she lives just near us, Jordan, and she got number one for the Australian Open for the over 85-year-olds tennis championship. Now, that <laughs> is so, so rare because usually our bodies let us down. But with trading – our minds can continue. It keeps us young. It keeps us associated with people who are different age groups, different backgrounds, but all in the strive, all looking for more, all wanting to achieve. And that is so seductive. Mm. All right. We're going to jump into some rapid fire questions now. Uh, what, is your, them on me. what does your morning routine look like? Gym and then look at the markets. Okay. And how do you decompress at night? I've got two children, uh, crazy Miss Ashley, who's 12, and the mature and very tall Ryan, he's 16. So hanging out with them, hanging out with my husband, um, I meditate, I do yoga, but I don't watch too much TV, I have to say. I limit myself to half an hour a day. I find it doesn't help me. Really? Mm. So you just find that it what makes you anxious, annoyed, frustrated? It doesn't make me happy. Really doesn't really? make me happy. It doesn't make me pursue my goals. I find that it, reading a book or listening to a podcast is by far superior to the input that you get from trashy TV. Huh. All right. Books then. If you had to gift one book to the audience, let's say for Christmas, what would it be and why? And it can't be your own. <laughs> you I'd like to say trading secrets and charting secrets. Yes, any of mine will be, be just fine. Uh, look, <laughs> look I, I don't even know if this is available anymore, but The Plus Factor by Dr. Harry Stanton. Dr. Harry Stanton has been my hero since I was 15. He's now a very close personal friend of mine. When I started trading, my broker at that stage introduced me and we've been friends ever since. So anything by Dr. Harry Stanton is a winner. I like that. That's a good one. Best purchase under $200. My notebook. I love pretty shiny notebooks. I'm feeling the the notebook at the moment, fondling <laughs> it, if you will. It's shiny. It's pretty. I love them. Where do you buy your notebooks from? Do you have a store of choice? I do. It's Card Republic in Camberwell. Okay. Very nice. <laughs> too too uh, quick an answer? Maybe. <laughs> I've noticed that a lot of people are all about, um, you know, like Kiki K used to be like a real niche brand, and uh, now yeah. it's like a con- not a conglomerate, but it's it's like there's More a Kiki K store everywhere. Yeah, mm. um, people are always talking about Kiki K, but um, I don't know. I've always loved the old moleskins. 
Not yeah. the not the paper ones, but just the hardback. Well, I've just uh, looked in the front of this notebook. It's a paper blanks notebook. I've probably had maybe 523 of them uh, in my life. So I'm one of their better customers, I'm guessing. Why do you think we all still love notebooks, like paper notebooks when we've got calendars in our phones and what? Like, I know we all use calendars, but... I still love the use of a notebook to manage yeah. my week. There's a lot of evidence with the differences between electronic production and writing things down. So not only do you retain more, it accesses different parts of your brain when you're actually writing and it allows you to make creative leaps more easily than if you were using an electronic device. So I use a process called the morning journal where I write and it's literally just keep your pen moving, don't let your pen stop. And I don't know whether you know Julia Cameron, um, the author of The Artist's Way. So I was very influenced by her. I've had her on my podcast. I've read about her information when I was at university. And so I've been keeping a morning journal ever since. doesn't work if I type it. I can only write it and then I get good results. Wow. The Artist's Way, I would recommend to the audience 100%. I bought like a stack of them um, and I use that for years. But now I, I sort of just do like a... Uh, some morning gratitude questions, sort of like a morning journal in journal yes. in a way. I've I've actually crafted my own that, unfortunately, um, I print out you know like tons and tons of copies of it. But one day I'll get there to making my own book, my own little <laughs> journal amongst the hundreds of other journals. <laughs> um, all right, last question for you: If you could have a billboard anywhere in Australia, where would it be? First of all, and what would it say? Oh, that's a really nice question. When I was 19, so just before I started trading effectively, you know, I don't count that one when I was a a (laughs) 15-year-old, I wrote my mission statement and part of that mission statement, which I think people misunderstand with me, is because I'm not just a trader. I want to see the light go on for other people. That's what gives me my jollies. And part of that mission statement is to inspire by leading by example. And I'd love that billboard up. can be anywhere. Anywhere. That's a good one. I really like that. Inspire by leading by example. Mm-hmm. I like that. It's very, very good. Very unique. A lot of people, mm. a lot of people always mm. look to someone else for a quote. But uh, yeah, look, Louise, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, this has been so much fun, Jordan. Yeah. It really has. And literally, I would love you to come on my podcast, Talking Trading. I think you'd be a hoot. Would love to do it. Where where can people find you on the interwebs? I suggest that people get my trading plan template. So that is free. Come to tradinggame.com.au, pick up a copy of my trading plan template, and I'll also give you my trading made simple audio course. It's a five-week audio course. And of course, talkingtrading.com.au, fellow podcast lovers, I know you'll love that one. All right, Louise, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Margin Call. Before you run off, make sure you subscribe on your podcast app to get first access to new episodes and consider sharing this with a friend who loves the Forex CFD game. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Go Markets. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S. Until next time, thanks for listening.